Okay. So let's all take a moment to pay homage to the Magnificent One, the unvanquished, the undefeated. the master to 10,000 10, world systems. He who is the greatest teacher, all sentient beings, all humanity has ever seen. As he discovered the path that leads us all to eternal and ultimate bliss. He discovered the truth that lay behind, that lay beyond us and the path that we must travel to attain that. So, before we begin, let us bring our hands together to pay homage to the Supreme Buddha. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Our teachers always remind us that it is not just the Dhamma or the presence or learning, listening understanding the Dhamma that takes one to Nibbana. They always remind us that there's a path, it's a practice, a practice that one must follow diligently. I often give you the analogy of the typesetter who checks every draft that goes out the publishing house, paragraph by paragraph, sentence by sentence, word by word, and letter by letter, every comma, every full stop, every page, passes under his scrutinizing eyes. He checks even errors made by the most successful people in this world. How about that? That is his job, that is his duty, isn't it? He can even check a book that is titled How to Write Good English. He can even proofread a book and check it for syntactical errors, semantic errors. A book that is titled How to Become Successful, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and so on. The principles of achieving greatness. But if you stop to wonder how long he's been doing this, he'll tell you, I have 10 years of experience under my belt and all these 10 years I've been doing this job. The job of doing what? Typesetting, proofreading making sure that the books go out in good shape. But the books that he's been proofreading, he's been reading them. Of course, you have to read to proofread. But unfortunately, 
although he has all the knowledge, he's read all the texts, and he's assimilated all that information, there's one thing that he hasn't done, and he doesn't plan on doing. Because he's quite comfortable being a typesetter. Got nothing against typesetters, by the way. I'm just saying that is one of the, probably one of the best examples I can offer you. So they'll be doing it year on year, and life will pass them by. But what they don't do is put into practice what they read, what they learn. And therefore, he's always a typesetter. You see, to become a successful man or a woman, to become a rich person, to become a wealthy person, whatever your goals and aims might be, to get wherever you want to go from wherever you are right now, there is a path that one must follow. It is a practice. Everything in life is the same. You've got to put in the work to get the results. Most people are too shy, too fearful, too worried, too bothered to put in the work. They'll give you a good story as to why they can't do it also. They'll tell you, well, with all these things I've got to do, with all these duties and chores and responsibilities I have to keep on top of, how do you expect me to put all this into practice? It's too much work to do. I've got a family of five to feed. I've got the bills to pay. And the debt collectors are knocking on the door every other week. How do you expect me to put into practice all these things that are in these books? Is what they'll tell you if you go and ask them, how come you're still a typesetter? They'll tell you, well, look at all the books I've got to typeset. I've got no time to read them and put them into action, put them into practice. Because what they don't understand, folks, is for the world to change, you have to change. And if you change, then everything else will change. But that's what people don't like to do. Seldom do you find a person who's actually willing to change. And I believe you are an exceptional example of that. You're all willing to change. Change is what has gotten you this far. Would you agree with me on that? Anyone here who's willing to say that, oh no, Swami Nuhansa, I'm the same person I used to be a year ago? Do you want me to remind you who you were a year ago? We might have to bring some sick bags. Hmm? How about five years ago then? Hmm? Ten years ago? Oh, let's not go there. Some of you will start to get epileptic fits. I only remind you, the things you used to do, the things you used to say, the way you used to behave. So what happened? One thing happened, you changed. That's why I often tell you, you know, don't come here giving me credit for everything that has happened in your life. This is simply as Guru Thero always puts it, a radio. It's a broadcast. And with a broadcast, it is broadcast to lots of people. And the thing with broadcast is, 
It is down to each and every pair of ears that is fixed to a brain, which is then connected to a mind, to absorb that information, analyze it, reflect on it, apply it, and then finally make a conscious decision to do what? To change. So if there's one secret to success, folks, one reason why you have come this far, it is not because Swami Nwanze has been preaching the Dhamma to you for several years now. It's because you have decided to change. Change is the name of the game. So why do so few people do it? Because they are lethargic. They are lackadaisical. They don't want to change. Because change requires a strong attitude. We talked about the lay attitude and the monastic attitude a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? Change requires a strong attitude. It requires a strong character. So by whatever degree you have changed, that shows your character. It shows your willingness to change, your willingness to be someone else than you were yesterday. You should come here hoping that you can become a better person than you are today, tomorrow. If, you, if someone comes here simply to you know, spend an afternoon, spend the day, spend a Saturday, you know, because it's a nice thing to do, to you know, invest a part of your life in the Dhamma, it's what we should do as good Buddhists. Ticks the boxes, hmm? makes you acceptable to your neighbors, to your relations, because you know, in your social circle, it's one of those things you have to do, like going to the pub on a Friday night, hmm? sending your children to top schools, hmm? driving that particular brand of car, wearing that particular type of brand of watch. And if going to the temple is another one of those things you have to do to fit into your circle, social circle, and to keep up with the Joneses, then, as they say, you know, far too many people spend their lives spending money they don't have to buy things they don't want to impress people they don't like. Agreed? <laughs> and you live to tell the tale. Aren't we all just fine specimens of that? One quick visit to your bedroom, open the wardrobe, and you'll be, I'll prove myself what you see in there. Take a good look around your living room, and these words will echo in your ears. People don't like change. Because people think that the world needs to change, I have to be like this, you know, this is the way I am. Yeah, my way is the right way. And even, even they, they even expect that of Nibbana, this is the funny thing. Because that's what they expect of everything else, that's what they've learned to expect, right? <clears throat> to, live, to live in comfort, right? You don't like the old sofa. So to live in comfort, we must get ourselves a new sofa. A recliner sofa. This one's the old model. You've got to sit upright. Hmm? The cushion's old. It doesn't have the, the sponginess anymore. The recliner sofas are the 
next best thing. So, see, now the outside has to change for you to live in comfort. So you read with the old and in with the new. There's a newer model car out there. It's more comfortable. It's safer. Everyone's singing praises about it. So, for you to live comfortably, for you to live in luxury, now the world outside needs to change. Every time, everywhere we went, everyone we listened to, everyone who taught us, taught us that to be happy, you've got to change the outside world. I'm just giving you, throwing a few examples. You have plenty more, I'm sure you do. So that attitude we've carried all the way to this ultimate goal that we have set ourselves, which is Nibbana. I, don't, I know you don't subscribe to this idea, but what I'm saying is, just be conscious, just be careful, just be aware of this is perhaps your attitude that used to be. And you've come a long way to change that. You've made a conscious effort. It wasn't easy, you know, to, to have done something for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and then all of a sudden change that way altogether. As they say, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, you seem to have learned a few new tricks. So either you're no dog, or you've just disproved the old adage, you can teach old dog new tricks. See, this old dog learned a few new tricks. But it required a change of attitude. This is what I'm always going on about attitude changes, changing who you are. That is the hardest thing to change, I admit. I'll be the first to put my hand up and say, if you can change one thing and expect everything else to change for you, that one thing is you. And the hardest thing to change is you again. And there's a reason for that. The reason for that we study in our sermons, in our talks. The reason, the cause, and what we can do about it. But Initially, first and foremost, it requires you to accept and acknowledge that truth. Before you begin to change, you need to admit and accept and acknowledge that, yeah, I, I know, it seems tough. I, I know it's not going to be comfortable, because what I'm asking you to, you to do is to step outside your comfort zones. This is uncharted territory. You know, when you know the grass is green on this side, why wander out? Just because I say so that the grass is greener on the other. It takes a great dose of courage and willpower, determination, resolve, compassion towards others as well as compassion towards yourself. Because this is like open heart surgery. One wrong step and you could go astray. It's possible, has happened. Because the, the, the funny thing about Nibbana is, as cooling as it is, as blissful as the end result might be, there are lots of things like Nibbana. That's the thing. There are lots of destinations which look very much like Nibbana, but they're not Nibbana. That is why I know, you know I have heard some people, especially you know, when we have foreign visitors, they come and ask us, 
Swaminansa, Bhante. How come lots of different teachers teach lots of different things when, when you ask them what is Nibbana? Someone says it's this, someone says it's that, and you say it's this. Ah, oh, are you all going to a different kind of Nibbana? <laughs> Which one did the Buddha go to? I want to go to that one. <laughs> so, you know, there are so many different varieties of it now that half the challenge is trying to convince them to undo what they have already done within their minds and to erase what they already know and to convince them to do that. It's not easy. You know, you know what your name is, right? How easy do you think it's for me to, it'll be for me to convince you that's not your real name? That the name that you have been using and referring to yourself and have been known among your friends for, you know, God knows how long and for me to convince you that that's not your name, it's something else? How much convincing do you think is going to be enough. No, even if I try, you stand up and you walk out. This monk has gone crazy. I've known something to be true for so many years. My hairs went gray, Swami Nuhansa, right? knowing that this was the truth, this is my name, and now you're trying to tell me that it's not? What are you talking about? You'll tell me. Now, even if I were able to tell you that your name, you know, someone told you that it was your name. You didn't know it when you came into this world, so you had to ask someone what your name was, right? Yeah? Agreed? Yeah? That wasn't something you came into this world with. It's not like an arm or a leg. You had to ask someone, what's, your, what's my name? But, so even if you are willing to change that, see, some people are. They're willing to change their names. Huh? Even if that's possible, you know, there's something that's even harder than that. Something which you believe is the truth about existence. Something that begins to question your very identity. Oh, now we are talking. For me to tell you and for me to convince you that you are not who you think you are. You'll ask me, do you think, are you talking about my name, Swami? No, no, it's not your name. You're talking about my gender. No, it's not that. I'm talking about you. You are not who you think you are. You mean to say I'm more important than I am? No, no. You think, you're trying to say I'm, I'm actually far better looking than I am? No. None of those things. You are not who you think you are. In fact, you are nobody. And even when you say that you are nobody, it's a different connotation that Im immediately springs into people's minds. They think, well, yeah, 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 I get that. You know, there are so many more important people in this world. Everyone's someone. I know my, my brother is a doctor. My, my niece is he's he's an engineer. I, my my uh, wife's uh, brother is a, uh, he's a, he's a lawyer, and I'm just a nobody, I know. I missed the good years of my life. I didn't get my education. I didn't work hard. Yeah, you know, I'm a nobody. No, no. That's not what I'm talking about. This nobody that you think you are, that is also a somebody. I'm saying even that body doesn't exist. See, now how do you convince someone who's not known for 50 years, but 
an infinitely long period of time that they are somebody, that in fact they are nobody. This is why I say, folks, it's not simply a case of listening to a Dhamma sermon and understanding it and walking out and thinking, right, that's it, I'm done. Now I get it. This requires a practice. And that practice is what people are not willing to take. I don't mean generally, but I mean most people. They take a backward step. The moment we say, you know, are you willing to stay here and just do what I tell you to do for 10 years? You know, if someone comes and says, right, I want to be a monk. I say, okay. Um, I'm going to give you something to do. I want you to do nothing other than clean the toilets. Mm, okay, well, for today. No, till I tell you. When are you going to tell me? That's the question they have to ask me. <laughs> when are you going to tell me that that's enough? No, wait, I'll tell you when I'm ready. Yeah, but when will you be ready, Swami? No, sir. What they don't realize is I'm already start, I've already started helping them to become a monk. But they're not ready to accept that. Because what they're waiting for me to do is to change them so that they become a monk. They're looking for that external change. They're, they're looking for me to tell them when I'm going to don their robes and shave their heads. But that attitude still remains the same. So if I were to tell them, no, for 10 years you're going to have to do that. Just wash the toilets. You can't attend the sermons. We'll feed you. We'll give you something to wear. You can sleep in a kuti just next to the toilet so it's easier for you to get to work in the morning. Ten long years, you're going to have to do that. You're right. You're willing to do that. I think before you end the sentence, they'll be gone. It's not whether you're willing to wash a toilet or not. It's about are you willing to engage yourself consistently on a path doing the same thing over and over and over again because this is a practice. It's not a different flavor every day. You know, you can't, like when you go into a restaurant, they say, you know, the soup of the day. <laughs> we don't have a Dhamma sermon of the day. We don't have a karmasthana of the day. It's not how it works. This is about one truth applied a billion times. Not a million truths. There's not a million things you need to understand. There's one thing you need to understand and then apply it a million times. That is what changes you. But that is what people are unwilling to do because their mindset, their, you know, people are always looking for variety. We, talk, we, we discuss why that is the case, right? When people want a separate world, when they look for that variety. Variety is, as they say, the spice of life. So they're always looking for that spice. And so if you were to tell someone, you've got to do the same thing over and over and over again, you know, just ask yourselves, how many times can you watch the same episode? How many times can you sit in the same seat? How many times can you go on the same walk before you get fed up? How many times can you have the same meal for breakfast, lunch and dinner before you say, no, I'm, I'm, that's it, I can't, I can't take this anymore. Say its name one more time and I'm going to throw up. 
or I'm going to throw it in your face. That's what I'm saying. This is attaining Nibbana is easier than eating what they say, curd. Hmm? I'm borrowing that from Singhala. It's easier than doing that, but it's more subtle than threading a needle. It's very subtle. It's not difficult. It's easy, yes, it's very subtle. That subtlety is what changes you. And that subtlety is what you need to be able to come into harmony with. I always tell you, nature is always in the state of Nibbana. You know, if someone goes around looking for Nibbana, then they've, they've lost the plot. Nibbana is where you are. It's right around you. It is you. But takes a great amount of wisdom to understand that. But all that happens if you are willing to keep steady and steadfast on that path. Because that path requires your practice. It's not a million things done once. It's one thing done a million times. Now, hand on heart, ask yourselves, are you willing to do that? It is what I do as a monk. I didn't come here looking for teachers to give me lots of different karmasthana every single day. We don't get that here. Ask Guru Amru. He doesn't do that. You know, sometimes when we have these meditation programs in Samma Samadhi, you know, you get a different karmasthana, like two or three a day. Sometimes, you know, through the week, we, you know, to a certain extent, that is really on some accounts to keep the newcomers entertained. Because what some people will come here for is looking for that variety. Because they think, right, let me try 200 you know, iterations of this. It doesn't work, right? Let me try 1,000 of that. Let me try 10,000 of this. And they'll just keep on chanting it in the hope that when they chant it for the 10,000th time, everything will become clear to them. But if you ask them, are you willing to change? They'll say, yes. All I've got to do is chant that a thousand times, right? That's not the change we're talking about. I want you to ask yourselves, you know, you have changed. You know, please don't think that this is an accusation of any sort. I want, you to, I want you to look at yourselves and identify why it is you have come this far. And the answer to that is because you have undergone that change and you have been willing and so ready to go through that change. That change is what has brought you here, which is why I said a moment ago, please don't give me credit for everything that has happened in your life. In your mental eye, go back to your homes, go back into your workplace. When you're among friends, your behavior there, your conduct there, is a strong determiner of whether you are someone who's a Buddha aspirant. It's I can't judge you on how you behave when you get here, when you're here, you know? Because when you're here, you're clad in white, symbolizing your purity. Yeah? 
you're here very calm and very quiet very collected that's because that's how you got to be in a lecture, in a sermon, at the temple so this is this may not be I say this may not be a true representation of who you really are out in the wild because the real test of character is when you are in the face of adversity that's the best place to check who you are the best place to check what you look like is not before a party in front of the mirror right because by that time you've done all of it you put on your makeup you're all ready that's not the best time to check how you really are the best, the best time to check how you really are is straight after you get out of bed go and look at yourself in the mirror that's what you really are that's what you really look like that's why the moment you see that you think oh god <laughs> I need to change this quickly before someone sees And if you hear a knock on the door, wait, 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 don't get it yet. I'm not ready yet. Hold on. Two minutes, please. And you run into the washroom, wash and check all the chores, checks and balances. Hair. You got a checklist, right? Before you, before you meet someone in the morning. Only your very trusted and close relations are allowed to see you in the way you are first thing in the morning, right? Sometimes maybe it's just the person who sleeps next to you. They are the only people who are allowed to see in some relationships, not even them. You think I'm joking? <laughs> some people are so so obsessed about what they look like that they won't even they're not even happy for their partners, their husbands or their wives to see them first thing in the morning. They cover their faces or they'll wake up before their spouse does and then Go into the washroom, you know, print them up, wash them, make up, whatever, and say, Hi, honey, good morning. I'm not saying, you know, that's right or wrong. What I'm saying is, your, the, the true test of who you are is who you are in the face of adversity. So, in those moments, folks, don't run away from them because you'll never find a better time to check who you are. Oftentimes, I've, I come across people and the, the best piece of advice I can give folks is in the face of adversity, don't be a runner. Stay. Stay to find out who you are. Don't do a runner. Stay to find out, find out who you are. If you do a runner, you'll end up a runner-up. But if you stay, you'll end up the winner. Stay and find out who you are. When things are not go going to plan, when people are accusing you, rightly or wrongly, when people are saying things that really hurt your ego, hmm, it feels like someone's throwing acid at your heart. You know these moments I'm talking about? When your most trustworthy friends, they say things, they do things, and you feel like, someone just stabbed me? Feels like that, certainly. 
When you have those ouch moments, no part of your physical body is hurt, but it has disturbed your very soul. Those moments I'm talking about. Those are true tests of character. You know, if I, if you, like in any school, any good, any, in any good school, in any good class, they give you tests, don't they? To see how well you've taken, you, how well you've understood the lessons. Right? If you ask me, Swaminansa, I've been coming to these sermons for so many years, right? God knows how long. Aren't you going to give us a test anytime soon? So we don't give you class tests. We give you home tests. That's the best place to give you the test. Your test is how you are at home. Because here, no one's going to bother you. No one's going to annoy you. No one's going to step on your toes or sit in your seat. No one's going to say harsh things to you. Certainly not intentionally. Hmm? But you know, when you're among friends, when you're among at least people who you think are friends, when you're among your close relations, your distant relations, hmm? your close family, extended family, and words pass. Sometimes, you know, double meanings, subtle hints. Now you've got to check yourself. Did I pass that test or did I fail that test? So please, never be someone who will run away from those moments. Allow people to crush you. I don't mean walk all over you. Don't get this the wrong way. I don't mean, you know, let someone, you know, some, some old beggar on the street come in and say, right, out, from here on, I'm staying here. <laughs> and then you like, okay, let's pack and can you give me 10 minutes while I pack my bags? I'm not asking you to be a hermit, right? Be an ordinary human being, that's fine. Just be, you know, live respectable lives, that's good. What I'm saying is, Allow people to mentally crush you and see if you are like a, like a flower. Because a flower gives fragrance even to the hand that crushes it. See if you are like a flower. You don't have to take a flower plant home and plant it and put fertilizer and water and everything for it to give you fragrance, right? You can even crush it. And now smell your hand. What does it smell like? It smells fragrant. See if you're someone like that. So how do you know whether you're a true flower if you don't allow other people to crush you? Those are the moments that really test you. And your practice should get you there. This is why I tell you folks that Whenever you practice the Dhamma, right? Whenever you sit here, listen to a Dhamma point, maybe something new, something, ah, that's a good way of applying the Dhamma. What's going to get you results is what happens after that. I've said something, you've gotten it, yep, fair enough, but what really makes you change, what helps you get there is what happens after that, what you do after that. Homework is very important in this lesson, in this subject. It's almost the be-all and end-all, your homework, how you apply what you learn here.
So allow problems to come to your life. Don't walk away from them. Remember, if you run away, you end up a runner-up. If you stay, the winners are those who stay till the end. Those are the winners. They stay till the end. Who knows, today might be your last day here. Life can be cruel like that. Fate. Hmm? Your life is not in your hands. Is it? It is when you're holding the steering wheel. And especially if you don't wear the seatbelt. But life is generally not in your hands. You might think that you might plan for your day, you might plan for the next day, you might have even plans for, you know, Christmas. Have you got plans for Christmas already? When is Christmas? A week from today? Two weeks? Something like that? I I used to be among people who would always plan for Christmas. You know, they'd be, they'd be planning for Christmas months on. You know, right, you know, from August, September time, we'd be talking about, you know, where are we going to do our, have our Christmas tours. It's, it's a big, big thing for people. Hmm? What, where, where are you going to be spending your New Year's Eve? Any plans? I know some of you will say, here, here, so I mean, I'll say, here, here. <laughs> Now, for you, for some of you who are not here, where have you planned to spend your Christmas, your New Year's Eve? Hmm? You've already planned for all that. You've planned perhaps your next, your next birthday. What do you want to do for your next birthday? Where are you going? Scuba diving? <clears throat> hmm? Sky jumping? What's your plan? White water rafting? Oh, whale watching. <laughs> Or shall we do something a bit exotic for a change? Plans, 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 so many plans. Those plans, you know, they, they're like a dream. You know, it's like the carrot that's always hung in front of the donkey. Hmm? Those plans just keep moving you on, one step at a time. Hmm? makes you forget everything that's on the periphery. That one focus just keeps you going forward. You can smell the carrot from here. Isn't it? What are we today? What's the date today? Ninth? Tenth? Tenth? Tenth. So what? Christmas is what? Just another 14 days from today. 14, 15 days from today. Now I know Christmas isn't big for most of you, but you know, it will be for some of our listeners online and in a different country, different culture, you know, it's the biggest thing. <clears throat> Christmas trees will start going up and then people will be talking about, you know, how big the tree is and which tree is the bigger tree and how many lights they, how many lights go on the tree. I'm not saying any of this is bad. What I'm saying is, well, you know, while you're planning for all those things, Life is passing you by. When you've forgotten why you're here, when you've forgotten the plot, 
then hmm? it's like when you watch too many adverts while you're watching a, a, an episode of a teledrama sometimes they play so many adverts you forget which one's the drama which one's the advert <laughs> because sometimes it's the same people it's the same characters also in the advert right husband and wife in one is mother and son in another and that's the advert you wonder hang on which one is the ad so in the same way right you're you you are all here you all not i don't mean necessarily here i mean here you're you were born to do one thing perhaps some of you may have forgotten so i'm trying to help you remind yourselves on previous occasions you would have met buddhas bodhisattvas and before them you might have made aspirations i will somehow become a human being perhaps you know your previous births you might have been devas and decided right i'm going to be born a human being and i'm going to attain nibbana and i'm just going to make sure that i go into this world at a time when the buddha dhamma prevails so here you are right that plan worked out so you're here now and then what happened you lost the plot and you forgot what you came here for i'm talking about your life talk about what's happened with your life what will happen with your life and i'm saying think about this at least once in a while take a moment to reflect and ask yourselves are you willing to change change is the name of the game you have changed that's why i asked you a moment ago go back 6 months go back a year and ask yourselves are you the same person you were then clearly the answer is no you are not you have moved forward sometimes in leaps and bounds and all that is good it is that change that has brought you here that has got you this far in your life and therefore it is change that will take you the rest of the way so whenever you listen to something whenever you learn something new please 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 make sure that you take that and you take it into your lab of life embrace those adversities embrace the vicissitudes of life the ups and downs of life nibbana is not running away and you know trying to find a comfortable place to be that is not what nibbana is don't please don't for a moment think that that's what swami nanze has done in leaving his lay life and coming into monkhood no i didn't run away from the problems of life i ran away from the one the people i had to associate who continue to put into my mind poor practices the wrong methods and they almost made it their aim of life to keep me ignorant but you can't blame them for that because they didn't know they were ignorant in the first place that was one thing and secondly what i ran away from was not the problems of life what i ran away was from my attitude i wanted myself to change so much so that from the day i got here i have allowed the people that have come into my life to change me for the better 
Even today, I'm willing to change. If any one of you can, for instance, come and tell me, Swaminathan said, you know, all this that you understand, you understood as Dhamma, as Nibbana, I see a flaw in that. It's not true. It's not right. I've got, I've got the, the, uh, the answer for this. Are you willing to listen? Are you willing to learn? Of course. I'm willing to put out everything I know and start from scratch. But I'm not just going to take it just because you say so. It needs to be convincible. So even to that extent, I'm willing to change. And open-mindedness is an attitude that you must always have. Even a sotapanna. Even one day one becomes a sotapanna, they should still be willing to put out anything that they already know. And they should be willing to learn and see if that makes sense to them. That doesn't mean anything and everything goes. What that means is, you know, they need to be able to reflect, understand, analyze and comprehend if that is the truth. So change is the name of the game. So if you want to walk away with one thing today, out of this lecture hall, then that one thing I want to be is change is the name of the game. Your practice is very important, folks. And that practice must change you. I'm going to give you a, a bit of an analogy to help you understand this concept because I've been speaking with some of our Swami Nuhasis lately and trying to help them better understand what Guru Thero wishes for us to understand and comprehend as Nibbana. Because what I told them was, you know, from time to time, Swami Nansa, you, you might you might you might feel like you know I've been ordained for five years, six years, right? And I'm practicing, but nothing seems to be nothing seems to be changing. And then God forbid someone comes, it could be a layperson, it could be a, a clergy. They'll come and say, you know, the reason that you're not able to progress is because you're in the wrong place, right? You need to be in the thicket of a forest or you need to be in a cave somewhere among the bears, among the lions and the tigers, away from civilization. You need to, you need to be able to go and beg for your food. Here you get it, it's given for you. All you have to do is come down and hold your arms bowl and you get your arms. That's not how you need to be. You need to be able, to, you need to have to go and find it. Like a hunter-gatherer. That's the lifestyle that you need to choose to fulfill this path. And then, for someone who has not understood Nibbana, because they're, they're still trying, you know, what is Nibbana? What is Nibbana? What is Nibbana? For someone who hasn't understood it, they'll always be pondering. Okay, I've been practicing this as, as far as I understand. I've been doing it for five years. Nothing seems to be happening. So what should I do? So I, I, I talked to them when I was having a, just a general conversation. I said, you know, it may be that one day you might, someone might come and tell you this. Or they'll tell you, you know, it's the position that you, that, that posture that you practice, that's not right. You've got to sit upright. Legs folded. One hand on the other. And you've got to focus on your breath. For three hours in the morning, 
three in the afternoon and another three in the evening. That is what is going to get you to Nibbana. So when I was speaking to this audience, I, I, I said, you know, these are things that may happen in the future at some point. So please listen to me. And I explained to them how I see Nibbana. So I'm going to put this to a side and try and explain this to you using my two hands. Imagine this is the mind. Okay? And these are the thoughts that appear in your mind. Or it could be the sights that you see, sounds, smell, taste, touch, your environment, what you wear. Basically anything in the outside world is this. Okay? This is your mind. People think that there is a thing called Nibbana that they need to go and find somewhere. Like what Christopher Columbus did when he went on a discovery. And then he found America and he said, ah, found it. So what you have are explorers. There are explorers and there are discoverers. If you're an explorer, you go exploring to find, in the hope of finding Nibbana. Careful, you'll keep on exploring until the cows come home. <laughs> Nibbana is not something you explore and find, it's something you discover was always with you. That is the concept I'm trying to get across to you. If you believe that Nibbana is something, something that you got to go and find, and it's out there, therefore, You've got to keep changing the outside until, you know, it's like when you try and open that combination lock. Hmm? Ever done that? Put your ear to the, to the wall and... Yeah, done that, experience that, you know what I mean? You've seen it in movies, right? When they try and break into the banks. Yeah. <laughs> right? so, so people think that, you know, there's, there's some combination out there and if I just manage to find that, that'll be my bliss. It's like finding a wife. The perfect one is out there. One day I'll find her. Like I said, you know, we, people are used to this, this, this quest of looking for things that they think ticks their boxes. You know, they went looking for a car. You went, you've been car hunting. You've been house hunting. Yeah, job hunting. Hmm? Yeah, girlfriend hunting, boyfriend hunting, second girlfriend hunting, <laughs> on the side hunting, <laughs> restaurant hunting. When you go to a country and you want to go and see the you know, places of interest, you go on a website and you go you know, hunting again. As I said, this is the hunter-gatherer mindset. We've always, you know, it's, it's sort of in our DNA. We're always used to hunting and finding what we, what we wanted. So, because this is what we've always been used to, we believe that Nibbana is also something that we have to go hunting for. So people go exploring, thinking that one day I'm going to find Nibbana. And it looks like this. So if, so they, they'll, they'll keep, they're, they're ready. Now, if it's got to be something like this, then of course, to accept that, you've got to have something like this. Right? That's when it's complementary. Yeah? So they're always like this. With the mind like this, they go looking for something like this. 
And if they come across something like this, does that fit? No. So they say, no, doesn't work. Give me something else. Next day they find something like this. Does that fit? No. Give me something else. Next day they find something like this. Does that fit? No. All along the way, what they didn't realize was that that was where they lost Nibbana. Nibbana is this, not this. 99.9% of people in this world on their quest for Nibbana will go exploring in the hope that one day they will find it. So when lay life doesn't work, they'll try monastic life. When monastic life doesn't work, they'll try again what? Lay life. That's the way it works. When that doesn't work, they'll try the life of a hermit. Hmm? Remember the Bodhisattva? He was like that. You know, when he renounced his kingdom and he went looking for a teacher, he thought that the teacher would be able to teach him Nibbana. In other words, he thought that he would, he would be able to go to someone and they would give him served on a plate, there you go, better, Nibbana. That's what he thought he would be able to find. And ultimately he discovered, hmm, none of these seem to be working. I've gone to every teacher under the sun on this blessed land and no one seems to be able to give me Nibbana on a plate. Then he realized, perhaps, perhaps change needs to happen within, not without. See, these are the, when, when this is what you're looking for, folks, this is adversity. Hmm? Doesn't fit. That's when you cry. That's when you weep. That's when you mourn. That's when you grieve. See, doesn't fit. And what happens when you are, eventually find something like this? Woohoo, party. That's time to celebrate. Hmm? All the bells and whistles and call the friends over, hmm? cook a nice dinner, throw a party. But this is always changing. So it's not always going to be that size. It's like your foot. One day it fit into your shoe, the next day, now you're going to have to go and find a bigger shoe. Wouldn't it be easier if you just learned to work without shoes? As I have done. Just think about it. Huh? When I first started wearing shoes, I think I was what? Five or something. Right? And then from that day on, would you believe it? Until I was 25. Every one or two years, usually every year, I'd have to go and find a bigger shoe. Because my damn foot, it kept changing. You have no idea how much time I spent at the shoe shop finding a right fit. And then they'd give it to me and then I'd walk up and down the aisle, making sure that it was comfortable with the laces, without the laces, with the Velcro, with the strap, huh? tightening it, adjusting it. You had no, have no idea how much time I spent trying to find the right shoe. 
And then when everything was fine, I said, do you have it in another color? And after all that, hmm, a year, a year and a half on, what happened? My foot. That's what happened. My foot happened. Hmm? He decided to change. Then I realized one day, you know, at this rate, I'll be going through more shoes <laughs> than the seasons in a year. Isn't that right? So I decided, enough with this shoe business, right? I'm going to drop the case with the shoes. That's where I am now. So now, it doesn't matter how big my shoe is. By big pardon, how big my foot is. So in the same way, people walk around looking for the right shoe. And when it fits, sometimes they have to use a shoehorn to try and squeeze it in because they like the color of that shoe. It looks nice. Oh, it's the last pair. Huh? And it's the next, you know, it's the, it's the new fad in town, and you know, everyone's wearing one. Hmm? Or oh, it's limited edition. Huh? So when it's a limited edition, of course, you know, you have to, you have to adjust, right? So people walk around trying to find the right shoe. The problem is the shoe, the the foot keeps growing. So this is Nibbana. If ever you find yourself doing that, trying to find Nibbana, please realize you are a million miles from Nibbana. This is not Nibbana. Nibbana is being like this so that anything goes, anything is okay. If anything is okay, then they are equal, aren't they? So if anything, everything is equal, right? This brings us to our understanding of this separation business as well. So, you know, there's a lot we can take from this analogy. If everything is equal, then why does it matter whether this is a kuti, or whether this is a cave, or whether this is a forest? <clears throat> Excuse me. Or whether this, this is the, the, the Himalayas? Who cares? or whether this is under the sea. Because this is not the thing that needs to change. It's this that needs to change. This is Panchaskanda, the five aggregates, and various instances of it. This is Upadana, clinging. Therefore, lo and behold, Pancha Upadana Skanda. Give me that in one word. Dukkha. This is Panchaskanda. This is the mind. Upadana is a function that happens in the mind. It's not something that happens with the aggregates. So when this happens, folks, the product is Dukkha. You're trying to cling on to something that is not fixed. You're trying to cling on to something that is constantly in a state of transience. It is not meant to be fixed.
its very constitution is subject to change. Change is what brought it to being. So how can you expect it now not to change? Think about it for a second. Hmm? Let me spit it out to you in terms that all of you will understand. Right? Was it not change that brought your child into this world? <clears throat> Think about something that you really, like, you really like or you really love. Was it not change that brought it into this world? A cake. Imagine the most delicious, your favorite cake, right? Put it out on, your, on that mental table, your imaginary table, put it out there in front of you. Is it not change that brought it into this world? Is it not the fact that Anicca is in operation that brought this table, this cake into this world? So why then do people expect it to no longer be Anicca? It was change that brought it into this world. So thanks to change we have it. If thanks to change we have it, then how come people wish for change to no longer happen? Nonsensical. So get it straight in your heads. <clears throat> this is Nibbana. So when I say, you need to practice Nibbana, put this into practice, put the Dhamma into practice. How do we make sense of that? <clears throat> the Dhamma teaches you the nature of this. Nature of this. And it also teaches you the nature of this. Here you have the Four Noble Truths. Okay? Here you have Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta. I'm loving this sermon. I hope you are too. Here you have the Four Noble Truths. Here you have Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta. Suffering. Cause of suffering. Eradication of suffering. And the path to doing that. Suffering, the cause of suffering, the eradication of suffering, and the path to the eradication or the cessation of suffering. Over on this side, you have anicca, you have dukkha, and you have anatta. Because anicca, dukkha, and anatta are characteristic characteristics of nature. Let me present to you nature. Once you understand the anicca, dukkha and anatta nature of all things, that is the path for this to happen. So really, this happens, so this is like a flower blooming, right? This happens when the mind, this is, which is the mind here, the mind understands the true nature of these things. It's when the mind believes that there are things that are fixed, that there are things that can be separated, the mind takes that shape of the thing, that which, of the thing which it wishes to separate from everything else. See? Now this is mind, and everything else 
I don't want, that's not mine. It consumes this. But to do that, it needs to be of the understanding that this is nicha, sukha and atta. But if the mind realizes that, no, this is anicca, by its very nature, there is no such thing that is fixed here. This is simply, you know, the configuration that is present at this moment in time. This is always changing. I hope you're watching this with the sound on, otherwise it'll look like I'm doing a dance. <laughs> huh? So, this is the constantly changing nature. This shape is simply a manifestation of the causes that are in effect right now. This is cause and effect in, in, in action. This is the effect of each of these causes. Remember we talked about the music last week? Yeah, this. That's one cause. That's one cause. But when the two of them are played together, that's a, a new effect that didn't exist until then. But I didn't bring in a third cause, did I? There was not a third instrument. Here's one instrument. And here's another. Do you see a third instrument? Then where do you get this from? Exactly. Causes come together to produce an effect that doesn't appear, that is not present in the causes. But take away those causes, take away just one of those causes, where's that effect gone? But we didn't take away the effect, we only took away the cause. This is the whole point about causes manifest an effect. There is not an effect that came and dropped out of thin air and dropped out of the sky or somewhere. The effects are simply manifestation of the causes that are in work at the moment. So when you understand that concept about all sentient things or about all Sankara, Sankhata, all conditioned things. When you understand that nature about all conditioned things, the fact that, you know, this is, all, this is a condition at this moment in time, folks. You know, this, we need to expand our, our interpretation of these things. That's what we need to do. <coughs> you know, you might have, <coughs> excuse me. I'm sure you'll have understood the, uh, the meaning of this word conditioned as something that was conditioned and there it is. Right? There's a conditioned thing because there are causes, there are, there are parts, there are component parts that make it and therefore it's a conditioned thing. What I'm trying to ask, what I'm asking you to do now is, that is true, but let's expand that. I will step into the next dimension, expand our horizons here. It's being conditioned every moment. That is why they say it's conditioned. It's like the aircon. You see the setting on that air conditioner? Hmm? It says it's 26. So, once the room is at 26 degrees, what can we now do to the air conditioner? Switch it off, right? Can I switch off the air conditioner? 
Why not? Because what the air conditioner does is it maintains this, this temperature. Meaning, this temperature that you experience right now, it is always conditioned. Therefore, the aircon is air conditioning. It's a process. You, although you see a machine, what it's actually doing is a process. That process is constantly at work, conditioning, conditioning, and always conditioning. Provided it keeps on conditioning, you will experience what you experience right now. You switch it off for a few minutes and you will re realize what I mean. So, all conditioned things are conditioned because it is the manifestation of those conditions. So, this is a conditioned entity. Meaning, there are causes that condition this all the time. All the time. Not like it's conditioned once and now you can, they can go away. They can retire. We, I drew the circle on the board the other day. A ring. Yeah. Children stood in a circle. Right? And you ask them to walk away. Where's the, where's the ring now? It's no longer there. So a ring is something that is conditioned. Make sense? It's a manifestation. All manifestations are conditioned. It's a conditional manifestation. So this is the thing. This is what we need to understand. So what is Nibbana then? Nibbana is understanding, comprehending this truth that all things are conditioned. In every state they are conditioned. So in Michigan, it's conditioned. In Wisconsin, it's, is that what I mean by every state? No, whatever state you find it in, right? It's conditioned. It's always conditioned. So when everything is conditioned, the mind needs to accept this. And if the mind accepts this, now it's not going to set expectations on this sankata or on this conditioned thing, expecting it to be that shape, that size, that configuration, and, and, and for it to be like that forever. Now, when change happens, there's, there's, there's free room to move, you see? But if it's like this, no. But remember, you can't stop this from changing, because this is changing by very nature. Is it because you understand anicca that the world is anicca? Or whether you understand it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, it's still anicca, right? So it's not like everything became anicca after the Buddha attained enlightenment. It was always anicca. The Buddha is simply an understanding, it's a realization. Enlightenment is a realization. Realization of how the world really is. So no one changed the world. He didn't change the world one bit. All he did was he realized, ah, this is how the world is. So what happened to him under the Bodhi tree? He, someone who was like this went on to become someone like this. That was the blossoming of his mind. That was the enlightenment that he achieved. And then from then on, the same things happened. There were still the Devadattas. <clears throat> there were still the Devadattas. His Buddhahood didn't change Devadatta one bit. In fact, without the Buddha, Devadatta would have been a better person. <laughs> At least in this birth, wouldn't he? Thanks to the Buddha, now see where he's gone. <laughs> Had it not been for the Buddha, he probably wouldn't have committed all those sinners sins. This is why I say, don't run away from adversity. See, this is adversity. 
I'm trying to demonstrate this to you in words that anyone and everyone can understand. I wish the kids were here today. So I, you know, so this they can they can make sense of. See, this is adversity. This is pain. This is when it hurts you. Do things hurt you? Ah, that's when this happens. That's when this happens. I probably look like a one of those monks and go like this. <laughs> this is when it hurts you. Now I'm not getting ready for a fight, okay? Kung Fu fight or something. <laughs> this is when it hurts you. This is when it pleases you. Hurts you, pleases you. Hurts you, pleases you. See, all the while you're keeping this like this. And you're saying, no, you go change. I don't like you the way you are. Change. So when this comes like this, no, go, change, change. And you push this away. No, change, change, change. No, even more, more, more. All right, coming now. And then on the way, someone else changes it again. <laughs> ah, go away, change again. Hmm? Okay, now come on, come, slowly. That's it, that's it, that's it, that's it, that's it, that's it. A little bit more. And then someone bangs on it. Do you not realize you're the problem? See? This is the problem. You're clinging onto things. Not you are clinging onto things. You're clinging onto things. Your clinging is the problem. Your expectations are the problem. I've said a million times, expectation is the biggest culprit. You only do this because you believe that these things are fixed and these things are separable. You know, this shape, you have desire for it. Shape here obviously represents, you know, a configuration, right? This could be anything, right? From size, weight, height, color, right? Smell, taste, touch, anything. Okay, this is simply to represent a manifestation. When the mind is prepared to let go. Now, no matter what comes, the mind is ready and willing to accommodate whatever. The mind is willing to accommodate whatever. So by this, what I mean is, it's ready to take whatever shape it is. So the same concept I drew the other day on a board and said, you know, with the screws, right? Same thing here. If it's fixed like this, expecting a fixed world, only these kind of things can fit. But when something like this comes, now, you got a problem. But imagine, if you are able to accommodate, see, now that also works. When this comes, that works. Something even tinier comes, that works. When this comes, that works. See, now anything works. Therefore, you are at peace. So how can you accuse a world of bringing you pain and suffering? But this requires change. That's why it's tough. This requires change. This requires others to change. Ultimately, all you're asking for is change. The question is whether it's what? You or the other person. That's why I said the other day, it's an irony how people say it's so difficult to change Swami Nuhansa and what do they do all day long? Ask <laughs> others to change. One day they're going to find themselves in front of a mirror. Aren't they? And that's when they're going to realize, oh God, now I realize why they found it so difficult to change.
when I kept on asking them to do that. The sooner you get yourself in front of that mirror, folks, the better for you. So yes, don't stop asking for change. Just do it in front of a mirror. Stop looking out the window. I've said it to you in these words a long time ago. Stop looking out the window and look through a mirror and ask for that change. I'm not saying stop changing. I'm saying keep on changing. Just make sure you're looking through the right kind of glass. There's one kind of glass. You look through that and you ask for change. You'll always be in pain and anguish, frustrations and annoyances, botherers, botherations. But it's another kind of glass. It's a special kind of glass. It's a very special kind of glass. Stand in front of that and ask for change and everything will change for you. See, everything will change for you. That's why they say, you change and the whole world changes. Doesn't that feel comfortable? Doesn't that feel comfortable? Doesn't that feel comfortable? Yeah, if this is willing to accommodate, everything feels comfortable. If your shoe is prepared to grow in size and accommodate whatever size of foot you are, wouldn't that feel comfortable? Yeah. But it doesn't, does it? That is why you are in pain. That's why from time to time you look for a different shoe. If your shoe were able to grow in size or shrink in size and accommodate your foot, you'd have no problem. See, I said, I said, you know, there are things around, right around, right under our noses, willing to teach us the truth about this world. If only we opened our eyes and opened our ears and shut our mouths <laughs> and started listening. We got one of these and two of these to do more of that and less of this, but unfortunately, What do we do more of? More of this and less of this. We do twice this. No, we do twice this with this. And we don't even do half of this with this. But we've got two of them. Now these are life lessons. Lessons for life. Even whether, whether, you know, regardless of whether it's Nibbana you're focused on or something else, some other pursuance in life you have, some other pursuit in life, either way, folks, you know, this is good stuff. I should really be charging you for this. I am. Don't forget, I am. Because what are you spending here? Your merits. Your merits. That's what you're spending here. That's why I said the other day in the Sinhala sermon, I don't know how many of you were there. You know, when you're here, you spend your merits. So make sure you get the best return on it. The moment you open your eyes, the moment you, you're here, the moment you walk in through those gates, your merits start to expend. So make sure you make the most of it. Having been born a human being, you've started expending your merits. That's why, you know, some people, they live a life of luxury. And once they're dead, you know, they go to places where they couldn't imagine in their worst nightmares 
because all they did was spend, 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 spend and spend. They earned nothing. Because remember, merits are also anicca by nature. They arise and they pass away. So there is no such thing as a meritorious person. <laughs> there is no such thing as a meritorious person or a demeritorious person. Hmm? There is no such thing as that. It's whatever the balance is right now. It's a running account. It's a current account, not a fixed deposit. Please understand that. You can't make fixed deposits into the bank of merits hmm? or into the bank of karma. They only have current accounts. You can make deposits, you can make withdrawals, oh, and they don't even give you an overdraft. There is no overdraft facility. So therefore, if you want to spend a good life, right, either materialistically or spiritually, do make sure that you keep on earning those merits. But the good thing is though, one of the ten meritorious deeds is what? Listening to the Dhamma. Ah. You're a winner there. Listening to the Dhamma is a meritorious deed. Preaching the Dhamma is also a meritorious deed. So we both earn merits while we are under this one roof. How about listening to the Dhamma while you're asleep? Remember, it's listening to the Dhamma, not hearing the Dhamma. Listening is a mental task. Hearing, your ears can do. Otherwise, you could play the Dhamma to deaf ears and it will still earn merits, won't it? <laughs> That's not how it works. Just jesting. Now, ask yourselves, do you have the right attitude for Nibbana? Are you willing to change yourself? Are you willing to accommodate anything and everything? Again, what I please don't misunderstand me. I don't mean to, you know, if someone walks up to you and says, give me everything, give me all your money, give me everything you got. Give me a house, give me a wife, that I'll give you, yes, no problem. <laughs> I wish you'd asked me earlier. <laughs> give me everything you got, give me a car, give me your money, give me your keys, yeah? It's not like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm willing to change, I'm willing to accommodate everything, right? Take anything you want. That's not what I'm talking about. This is not about being nonsensical. you gotta, you got to have a, 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 a straight head, right? And be sensible. The Dhamma is for the wise. What I mean here is, look at those times where you suffer mentally. Those are the places where a giving up needs to happen. Wherever you suffer mentally, wherever you enjoy pleasure mentally, those are the places where a bit of giving up needs to happen. Those are the places where you need to, you know, it's like when there's a crime scene, they bring the dogs, don't they? The police dogs, right? And then they sniff about and they find out the clues. And they wanna, where the, where the, the, it follows the scent, hmm? where the criminal's been. In the same way, what I'm asking you to do, folks, is, you know, get that dog out. Get that dog out and get it sniffing. Hold it on a leash and allow it to go sniffing in your mind. Find out those areas, those places, those spaces, 
where you got some work to do. The Dhamma has something to do. Those are the adversities and the areas where you experience pleasure. Both pleasure and pain are problematic. So this is not just someone shouted at me and I got angry, Swami Nasa, is that why I need the Dhamma? Not just that. There are things in life you enjoy. There are pleasures. So again, you know, I need you to be crystal clear here that what I'm trying what I'm not trying to say is that Buddhism is such a negative approach to life. You know, this is about aiming for a happiness that is beyond the sensual happiness that we are so used to. That's why pleasure and happiness are two very different things, and I've been trying to drill this into your heads for, you know, since since dawn. Pleasure and happiness are two very different things. Pleasure is what we experience when there's relief from a vexation. It's that relief you experience when, 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 when there's a fit. That's when you experience pleasure. This is when you experience pain. And this is when you experience happiness. Or willing to accommodate whatever happens. If it's this, it's this. If it's this, it's this. If it's this, it's this. See? Anything goes. That is happiness. This is pleasure. This is pain. Now I think we can start preaching to the deaf. <laughs> Can't we? Sign language. Huh? Pain. You hear me? <laughs> Talking to the camera. Pain. Pleasure. Huh? Happiness. I'm trying to put it as simple as I can so that everyone and anyone can understand this. This is, this is not rocket science. It just takes an open-minded view, an open-minded approach, willing to listen, willing to analyze, willing to contemplate, right? willing to change. That's what it takes. If you're stead, I'm, I'm, I'm headstrong, not going to change. In my way, Swaminan, so you try and prove me, I prove you wrong twice over. Then <laughs> there's little I can do. I'm not saying any of you are like that, but on some occasions I do find people like that. They come to the monastery all the way from, I don't know, Timbuktu. They come all the way from there. You know, they spend for their petrol and they come with their drivers and they get out, you know, get out of the door and they walk all the way up here and they come in and write, Samina, I've come to here, come here to prove that you're wrong. Sir, I'm all ears, I'm willing to listen to you. Whatever you're saying, it's wrong. I mean, whatever you're saying is wrong. Today is Saturday. You're wrong. <laughs> See, they've got a fixed mentality. Never be like, never be someone like that. Always be a student. When you're a student, you know the good old saying, right? The teacher appears. So, this is not the teacher. Wherever you are the student, the teacher appears. Whenever you are the student, the teacher appears. That teacher could be your six-year-old. Remember, your six-year-old is willing to teach you, if you are willing to listen. The autumn leaves as they fall off the trees are willing to teach you, folks, if you are willing to listen. The chirping birds are willing to teach you, if you are willing to listen. 
because all of them have this by their very nature the nature of anicca the nature of dukkha and the nature of anatta that is the nature of all things in this world understanding this anicca dukkha and anatta helps with the application of the four noble truths because the four noble truths are what is your misunderstanding misinterpretation lack of understanding in one word ignorance of anicca dukkha and anatta manifests as dukkha dukkha samudaya that's what happens your wisdom coming out of ignorance of the nature of anicca dukkha anatta is the dukkha nirodha and the nukkha dukkha nirodha are dukkha nirodha gamini patipada that is the practice the four noble truths talk about what happens to the mind how it becomes this and how it goes back to being in its natural state to do that you need to understand the nature of the world so understand this and look at what happens to this yeah very simple so we don't need to make this all convoluted and very complex and you know no <laughs> stop trying so hard take a deep breath and just you know just just relax it's not so hard as i said it's very easy but it's very subtle it's easy and subtle at the same time it's not it's not hard and what's the opposite of subtle i don't know simple so i would say it's easy and subtle i wouldn't say it's hard and simple i think that's how i'd put it i might be wrong but that's how i i really just at this moment in time nibbana is not simple but it's easy okay it's not hard but it's it's not hard it's easy it's not simple but it's subtle so that that's what you got to put on the balance this is why you need a teacher a teacher will help you work out the subtleties that's why as i said you know even to this day there are so many variants of what people believe nibbana every every person you walk up to you know clay or not clay of not clay uh, lay or cleric they will have their own interpretation of nibbana you know how many channels are there on the youtube so many different channels and each teacher you listen to they'll give you a different variant of what they say nibbana is so you might ask well how do i know this is right then swami nansa <laughs> Yep. That's the thing. There every man to himself. All I can say is I think unanimously everyone says merits are a good thing because you can't deny that the Buddha has said in his own words in plenty of sutras, right? Merit, 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 merit. He keeps going on about merits. And he says to help one to become a sotapanna you need merits to one become a sakrudagami you need merits anagami you need merits to become a, an arahatan mahansa you need merits to become a pacheka buddha you need merits and even to become a samma sambuddha you still need merits right so if in his words and we believe that the tripitaka is right if merits uh, is like this magic potion that helps you to get to what where you want to be then all i can suggest and advise is 
do merits wholeheartedly and let those merits guide you to the right place. If this is the place for you, you will be here, you'll remain here. If it's next door, then may it take you there. May it take you there, because wherever your merits is going to do its magic, that's where you need to be. Because let's not fool ourselves, you know, it's not like every Arahant was born in this temple. We don't even have one yet. <laughs> But there are claims that there are Ratanvances in other places. It's not down to you or me to go and question that. But let them, you know, ask them what is their doctrine? What is their philosophy? And then they will share it with you. And some of them will say, well, there is a philosophy, but only I can achieve it, you can't. Unfortunately, there are some Ratanvances like that. So, so I'm told. They are the only Rathanvans. If no one else under their guidance can become a Rathanvans. I mean, I don't want to be in a place where, you know, that, that is like an almighty God. You, you are not equal. You, you cannot achieve that state. So that's not where I would want to be. I, you know, I want somewhere where I, I'm empowered to achieve everything my teacher has. I don't want all the, you know, I, I'm not saying I need supernatural powers or, you know, all these, you know, what do you call it? Dibba Chakku, Dibba Sotha. I know it's not these things I'm interested in. But if there's a peace of mind that my teacher has achieved, I would want him to help me achieve that very peace of mind. Guru Handra always tells me, you need to achieve what I have and then some. Because he says, I didn't have a teacher like myself. <laughs> and he's so right. He says, I didn't have a teacher like myself. But you do. So therefore, I expect you to achieve what I have, and then some. So all I can say is, you know, let your merits guide you. With that determination, you engage in merits. If your Nibbana is at home, then our Swami says will disrobe and they'll go home. Carry on doing merits. Even we ask the Swami to do the same. If as a layperson your Nibbana will come closer to you in your ordained life, then as a layperson engage in merits. All the time, you know, this is the advice I give my parents as well. I know, you know, they're past the age where they can come here, but what I tell them is whether you understand what Nibbana is or is not Apati, just carry on doing merits and hope for nothing other than realization of the truth whatever that truth might be those merits will guide you to that carry on doing merits in the hope that may these merits help me to attain bliss because I ask you have you attained that bliss now and he says no that much I can promise you Swami I have not attained it because there are things, still things that bother me plenty of that so therefore that is not bliss then then I explain to him well, bliss is a state where you can be something on someone like this, not someone like this, always looking for something that's going to be complementary to your expectation. Be someone like this. You are not there yet, are you? He says, no. Well then, carry on doing merits. You will find a teacher who will teach you how to become like this. You will get yourself into the right environment and that will help you to get there. That is, what, that is the best advice I can give you. So I can't answer your question, is this the right Dhamma Swami answer? 
Is this where I'm going to attain my Nibbana? If you ask me that question, I can't give you an answer to that. Because it wouldn't be right for me to say that. Because ultimately there, every man to himself. But what I can tell you is, what I do. If it happens that what Guru Thero says is not the path to Nibbana, then may my, may my merits guide me elsewhere. That's the same thing I share with you. You know what? Guru Thero tells the same thing to us. Ask any monk you meet, any Anagarika Mahatma, any Anagarika Mahatma, and they'll tell you, he says, engage in as much merits as you possibly can, always resolving with the resolute that you should attain Nibbana, the ultimate bliss, and if I am not the right teacher for you, then may those merits guide you to the right teacher. Because he is not of the opinion that it is under his guidance we should attain Nibbana. He just wants us to attain Nibbana, that's it. Doesn't have to be him doing it. Because the way he preaches to us and the way he teaches us and what he teaches us, you know, this identification with the self is the problem. So therefore, he can't expect that it has to be under his watchful eye, under his guidance, that we have to attain Nibbana. He just wishes for us to achieve that, not under him or with him or next to him. So please don't find yourselves running away from adversity. If you have to run, run and ask for advice on how to face it and then run back. So every Saturday afternoon, we get together in small groups, right? And you have the opportunity to come back and do a review of how your week went. Talk to the Swami Nuhansas about the times where this happened. Sorry, where this happened. And where, when this came, and doing this was very difficult. It felt like breaking a leg. And once you try and do that, it felt like you, you almost had a seizure. It was so difficult to do that. And one of these came. And you were prepared for one of these. Kept on trying, kept on trying. Didn't work. Many, many tears and fights later. Ultimately, this had to happen. But you are still not happy like this. It's like an elastic band always wishing to go back to the state that it's comfortable in. Hmm? So sometimes you'll find yourselves like that, but you're, you're not happy that way. So that's the other thing you need to be conscious about. It's not simply enough to be able to accommodate. You need to be, accommodate, be able to accommodate gladly, peacefully. If that peace is not inside, then what good is it that you have accommodated? Isn't it? That peace you have to have inside. Because what is Nibbana if not peaceful? Etang santang etang panita. This is peaceful. This is blissful. That is Nibbana. Nibbana is being taken whatever shape. This is not fixed anymore. Whatever. Throw whatever. I'm always reading to See? Whatever you throw at me, I'm willing to accommodate. You can't make that kind of person angry. You know, there are things even Arahans can't do. No, there are things even Buddhas can't do. You know that? 
And he thinks he's all powerful. He can't even get angry. <laughs> it lies in the impossible range for an arahant, for a Buddha. Anger is an impossibility. Lust is an impossibility. Tension, stress, they're impossibilities. Make it impossible for you to become angry. Yeah, anger, anger hurts you more than it hurts the other person outside, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like a hot rod. Hmm? The Buddha gives this analogy. What a beautiful analogy it is. When you're angry and you want to you attack someone, it's as if picking a red hot rod and trying to stab it, stab it at someone or attack someone with it. Who got hurt first? And who's holding it with all their force? You. What a wonderful analogy that is. Wonderful metaphor. Become someone who is in, incapable of becoming angry. And you can. It's, it's all within our reach, folks, because Nibbana is there with you. As I said, you know, don't go looking for Nibbana. There are no specific configurations of Nibbana. It's not out there. It's here. See? Your ability to be like this, always able to accommodate whatever, that is your Nibbana. Always willing to change because the world outside is always changing. If you remain fixed and expect that configuration from the outside, then only those things can keep you happy. Everything else in this world is going to destroy your peace of mind. That is what has been happening to you in your lives. That is the story of your life, isn't it? In a nutshell. Every time you cried, go back in your, mem in your memory lane. Hmm? Think about the last time a tear jerked out of your eye. It wasn't a happy tear. Every time you, you, know, you, you lost your cool. You don't like that, do you? You don't enjoy when it happens, do you? When you have to have a fight, when you have to have that, those arguments, those nasty arguments, you know, always leaves a, you know, uh, leaves a bad air. It's not nice. We don't enjoy that. It's not in our nature to enjoy them anymore. It might have been, you know, maybe perhaps a long time ago, in those, days, those years when you told me not to remind you, and you asked for a sick bag, remember, right at the start of the sermon? Maybe, you know, back very long ago, that was what, how you defined your character, your, your, your personality. Now, I'm someone who other people shouldn't be messing around with. That's how some people like to, like others to see them. Yeah. Yeah. Did I just say neither? <laughs> I beg your pardon. I, I've seen people like that, especially, you know, if they're the, the head of the household. Hmm? Typically Asian fathers, typically. Sometimes mothers. That is symptomatic of an inferiority complex. When the mind believes that I am less than others, it attempts to it attempts to show off that it is more more than others by suppressing others. When 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 the mind believes that you know I am I am I'm actually less than others in whatever way. That could be authority, could be power, could be respect, 
it could be it could even be a physical you know handicap right could be a physical handicap because when you identify yourself with this body and you think you know if you're a short person for instance they say if you're unusually short say you're a dwarf for instance right i'm not saying this is symptomatic for everyone i'm just saying if there are people who have a physical attribute that they are not happy with it doesn't bother anybody else that's the thing that's the funny thing about it no one else worries about that it doesn't bother anybody else but if they are not happy about that now they feel that they are less than others and then when that happens the mind attempts to stand out and above others and in, in its attempt to do that it forgets that its place as a zero is at the end of everyone else it tries to put itself in front of everybody else this is what we see most of the time you know domestic violence as i say you know locking them up in prisons is not the answer to any of these problems i wish people came and asked us what to do about it domestic violence happens a lot because the husband especially the you know most of the time it's it's the, it's the male partner it, it can also be the female partner right but typically it's the male partner you know they they if you looked into their upbringing perhaps you know their father was really rough at home okay or they never experienced love at home growing up they they, they grew up in a culture in a, in a, in an environment where he was not respected he was not given love and affection and therefore he learned to get that affection get that respect more than affection respect out of showing his big foot to others stamping on others showing that he was bigger and better than others and now that he is considered the head of the household and he has his children who are younger and and weaker than him now you know he takes he takes it out on them and in doing so he feels that he is superior any effort any attempt to make yourself feel superior should be telling you loud and clear that you have an inferiority complex problem any attempt to make yourself feel that you are superior to others even if you are trying to show off taking a detour but simply as we touched on that topic all this is simply for you to introspect look within and see if you identify these traits within yourself then what do you have to do run away no these are the problems that you need to fix this is the practice that is so important so critical so vital this is the practice i'm talking about simply coming along and listening to the sermon and then going back and just you know attend to your responsibilities duties and chores is not going to do this for you what needs to happen is take this dhamma think about the problems you have this is why we have those afternoon sessions on a saturday where you can actually ask those questions ask if you as if you're asking on behalf of somebody else it doesn't have to be you know a personal confession if you're embarrassed because there are other people around you that's okay but then realize that embarrassment is also a problem <laughs> then work on that later <laughs> why does it, where does embarrassment happen how does that happen how do you how do you explain that through now the lens of dhamma because now you identify yourself with the problem so that problem is whose problem now it's my problem so that problem represents me therefore that problem that kind of characteristic that quality that attribute is uh 
is, is shunned upon, right? People uh, undermine that, and therefore when I identify myself with that, I'm also undermined with it. That's what happens. This is where ego kicks in. This is moha. Recognize them. You know, if you are among the weak and you try to show off that you are more, you are more than them, if it's to impress them in the hope that they will go on to achieve greatness, that's not what I'm, ask, what I'm talking about. Let me give you a simple example. I'm going to make one up, okay? But hopefully this can help you to understand. Let's say, for instance, um, say I walked into a room of young people and they don't speak English, okay? Now I have a choice. Let's say their native language is Sinhala and I could speak to them in Sinhala and I could, I have a friend of mine or someone rings me and I'm on the phone and they, he also understands Sinhala. I could, if I wanted to speak to them, the other person in Sinhala or to my friend in Sinhala and everyone would understand what I'm talking about and because you know, it is considered rude, isn't it, in society to be speaking in a language that other people don't understand. You've got to ask the question, why? Because if it does not relate to them, who cares what language you speak in? Say, for example, I'm talking with this Buddha about what we're going to be doing this evening in a language only he and I understand. But if you don't understand that language, that's considered rude. You've got to ask why. Take a moment to think about why that is considered socially rude. And I'm not going to say, let's not make it rude anymore, let's all do that. Fine, it's rude. Let's, you know, no, no arguments about that. Okay, it is rude, so let's not do that. But what I'm asking you to do is intellectually start thinking about why do you think it's rude? Because people in the room feel that it, they might be talking about me. Yeah. And when someone's talking about you and you don't know what it is they're saying, it may be that they're undermining you or maybe they're criticizing you, maybe they're mocking you. Those things are not nice things to think. But we are talking about what we're going to be doing this afternoon. So who's the mocker now? The mocker is doing the mocking. Now I have to ask mocker tether. So it's rude, right? There's no question about that. It is rude. Um, we are not here to try and, try and the way you know society works and social decorum and all that. Let it all be the way it is. But it begs the question: Why? If you are in a in public transport. Right? It's rude, it's considered rude to open your lunch and start having it if, even if you are really hungry and there are people sat around you. Because the scent of the food is going to do what to them? Yeah, indeed. It's going to start to make their tummies rumble, right? they're going to start mouth watering, it's going to be very uncomfortable for them and now apparently it is I who made them uncomfortable. So I have to bear my hunger so the sufferer has to continue suffering because they who need to change are not willing to. So, please, don't eat when you're out there in the public, in public transport, whatever, right? because it is offensive. Let's agree and abide by those rules. Let's adhere to them, no problem. But you've got to think why. Why is it rude to speak in a language that other people don't understand when you're in your presence? So I was going to give you the example, you know, say I'm in a room of young children and I speak to someone in English because I want them 
to be inspired. Hmm? I want them to feel maybe I also can be like that. I also want to become someone who can who can speak in English. I'm giving a very lay and very you know very materialistic example just so everyone can understand. Right? But let's say that's not your intention. I've seen some people do that. They'll go into a room full of people they'll never see again. And if they're with someone and they can, they can both communicate perfectly fine to show off, they'll speak in another language. Why? Because apparently English or the knowledge of English, the ability to speak in English gives you a higher social class. Are we here to change that? Oh no, let it be. We are not here to change the world. But please ask yourself if you've not seen this at least in society. This happens. They'll, they'll use it to rise above. And now if, if you're in a room full of English professors, they won't do it. Why so? Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes they're worried that they might make mistakes. And then they won't do it. But if they're in a room full of people who can't, you know, who, who will not know any better, now they will use that. You might wonder where is this coming from, Sainada? I have seen people do this. That, you know, that's when people have to address each other by their titles. Please don't be offended, any one of you. I'm not, none of these things are said to offend anyone. Right? Where that title is of absolutely no relevance. Imagine you are going to the shop right, to buy a loaf of bread and a bottle of milk. Right? And someone says, Oh, I've seen you lately. Say the, shop, say the shopkeeper, or maybe you know, someone else, maybe another person who's come to the shop. I've seen you lately. Are you new to the area? Yeah, yeah, I moved in recently. Oh, yeah. You're that Mr. No, I'm actually Dr. Virasekar, you know? Uh, yeah, I wasn't going to come and get medicines from you. <laughs> Why does that have to pop out? I can't say that it's always for the same reasons. Yeah, I, I'm not someone who accuses people of things that I can't prove, right? But one thing I know, when ego is in place, when there's moha in the mind, these are symptomatic of that. These are characteristic of that. And today I understand the mind and I recognize how I used to do some of those things in my past. That's why I say, bring me a sick bag before you start talking to me about what I, what I used to do and how I used to be five years ago. Pathetic. Quite literally pathetic. I'd never want to be that person again. Because in an attempt, in an effort to soothe my soul, hmm, you hurt others. You heard this saying, hurt people, hurt people. Well, you've heard it now. Hurt people, hurt people. The first hurt is the adjective. The second hurt is the verb. So if you ever find yourself hurting someone, that's because you are hurt. However, 
subtle that hurting might be, however underhanded that hurting might be, however innocent that hurting might seem on the outside. Hurt people hurt people. So, find out if you are a hurt person. Look within. This is what you need the Dhamma for. This is a practice. That's what I've been saying right from the start. This is a practice. Practice, 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 practice. A million times practice the same thing. Not practice a million things once. There is no consistency in that. That is why consistency takes a, takes a huge place on this path. To be able, the ability to do it over and over and over again. That is why you come up to me and say, Swaminas, I want to be a monk, right? Ten years, wash that toilet and do nothing more. What I want to see is whether that person can do one thing a million times. If they can do that, they can do this. Because it's the same attitude. How you do anything is how you do everything. So that attitude is what's important. At a job interview, I would always hire the person with the right attitude. I don't care much about whether they have the skills or the knowledge. Those things, you can give them a book, read this, learn it, and do it. But if you can't teach them, if they're an old dog, metaphorically I mean, age is not what I'm talking about here. Old dog in their ways, set in their ways, not willing to change. Those attitudes are really difficult to work with. Unfortunately for them, for their sake, it's very difficult to work with. Even in the presence of a Buddha, they'll be, no, this is my way, Buddha, you change. That's what the Angulimala said, you know. This is, I'm not the one running, you stop. But he was willing to listen. And the Buddha said, Angulimala, I've stopped. How about you do that now? Those words changed him. But his previous attitude was, no, I've stopped. You stop. The Buddha said, no, I'll stop. You stop. But samanas never lie. This is a samana. They never lie. So there must be some truth in what he's saying. Right? Okay, fine. I'll stop. What do you have to say? Why do you say that you have stopped when you're running? I have stopped. Why do you say I have to stop when I have stopped? What's the meaning of this? I don't understand. Explain this to me. And that's when he preached the Dhamma. And that's when he said, see, I have stopped doing this. You're still doing this. I've stopped doing that. Now I'm able to accommodate anything. I've stopped running. How about you do that now? That was his ask of Angulimala. And that changed everything. So, on this path to Nibbana, folks, Every day, ask yourself, are you willing to change? Are you willing to be a different person to you, who you were yesterday? Are you applying the concepts that we learn here? This is not simply an academic study of Dhamma. That will not get you very far. Remember, those books were also typeset by someone. You know, every year they probably print to several thousand copies of the Tripitaka. Right? So someone has to typeset it, someone has to bind it, someone has to weave it, someone has to print it, 
Hmm? Someone has to collect and gather the, the sheets of paper. Someone has to stack it. Someone has to put it into the bookshelves. Hmm? Someone has to scan the barcode at the back <laughs> to, to sell it. Right? But they're still living uh, very ordinary lives. Those who change are the people who will really achieve something. So whatever we learn here, whatever we take from here, so important that those things are put into practice. And what do I mean by putting into practice one last time? Is wherever you find these situations where this happens or this happens, this will bring you pleasure, this will bring you pain. Recognize that either way, you are bound to this world. You have made yourself susceptible to the things that happen in this world and therefore your pain and your pleasure are now completely in the hands of the world outside. Whereas if you take that authority over to you, the way to empower yourself is to become someone who is willing to accommodate. No matter what comes, you change. The day you achieve that, now you can no longer be made happy because you are already happy. Remember one last thing. A happy man never smiles. See me smiling? Because a happy man cannot be made happy to smile. Because he's always smiling. If you are unhappy, I can make you smile, I can make you happy, but you're, you've already lost. So even before we start, you've already lost. So don't be someone who's defeated and then I have to come along and pick you up and get you to stand on your feet again. Be someone who doesn't fall. You can become that. We can all become that because we have the path, we have the Dhamma, we have the practice, we have the Kalyanamittas to help us. You have you to guide you and to, to comfort you and you know, give you a place here and, and, and you know, to, to guide you and hold your hand. And you have, we have everything here. Just yesterday I was talking to Guru Hamra and asking, telling him, Guru Hamra, I can't imagine all the things we have here to attain our Nibbana. No, this is like I said, I said, I feel like this is the Nibbana supermarket. Anything and everything you need under the sun to attain Nibbana, we have it here, Guru Amr. We have teachers to keep a watchful eye over us and always point out where we go wrong. We have the Valley Maluvas where we can spend time and make sure we put things into practice and you know reflect on that and in the valley mother we have the dhammapada stanzas all around the walls always reminding us what the buddha taught hmm? in no uncertain words very clear sharp focus do this monk and you will free yourself don't do that monk and you will forever put yourself into suffering hmm? we have the books we can read we have noble friends Always keeping a watchful eye over us. And if you just count the, the pieces of advice that is given in this monastery in one day, you, I mean, 
It's incredible. Everyone has a teacher. And every day we have teacher meetings, teacher-student meetings, or one day or the other, everyone's meeting a teacher. And advice is given with an abundance of kindness and, 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 and love and compassion. Right? Let's not try this, let's try this instead. Let's do it this way. You know, how about instead of asking for another one of these, maybe you adjust yourself a little bit more so you can become more accommodating of whatever. These are the conversations we have every day. And some things we don't have, which we are even more pleased about. We don't have a TV. We don't get the newspapers. We don't know what happens outside. We don't go to the cinema. We don't listen to the radio. So there's no nonsense that fills our two holes on either side of our brains. We're just immersed in noble companionship. And then we have our most loyal devotees who make it their life's ambition to make sure that if there's anyone who is so focused on Nibbana, then we will make sure that they get to travel that path in the hope that we will also be able to do the same. That's why whenever I transfer merits, I always remind you, in the, for the sake of merits, you do this. This is not you being subservient to anybody. It's not like, you know, I don't think that you have a duty to feed the monks or anything like that. It's not, that's, I, I, don't, I don't see that as how the dynamics should work. It is simply an understanding of the concept of give and you shall get. Because that's the way the universe works. We can't change that. The reason I've gotten something today was because I've given something. And the reason I'm still giving is because I want to get more of the same things. That's why I come in here, come here and do the sermon. For two things. One... I want to free minds from suffering. Not you. I want to free minds from suffering. And two, I know what I give is what I shall get. So I know my teachers will be compassionate towards me. They will guide me. They will look after me. They will teach me. Not because they know I'm preaching and sharing the Dhamma. Because you don't need to know that for that to happen. When there are merits, then you get the rewards. No one needs to watch you doing the good things. And that's another thing to get into our minds. You know, when you're doing something good, when you're doing a meritorious deed, no one needs to see you doing it. Because it's not someone's knowledge of you being a good person that compels them to be good to you. That's not how it works. See, some Swaminathan says you'll never have met. But if they come to you with an arms ball, what would you do? You'd still offer arms, wouldn't you? So you don't know what good he's done, but those are merits. And the same way, you and I, perhaps some of you, we've met for the first time. But I'm sat here, you know, preaching my heart out to you. In the hope that you can understand this, you will absorb it, you will get it, and you will free yourselves. We've never met before, but you have earned the right to be here. Never in life do we get what we want, we only get what we deserve. And what we deserve we are, are things we have earned. There's no such thing as a free lunch, and I agree to that wholeheartedly. Nothing is free in this world. Everything we have to earn. And that's how it should be, I think. Because then we get to decide what we want to earn. No one comes and throws their rubbish on us, or their trash on us, right? We get to decide what we want to earn. Isn't that good? 
Hmm? If you want this, you, you work, on, work for this. If you want that, you work for that. If you want Nibbana, you work for Nibbana. If you want to go to the heavens, you work for that. That's how it should be. So whatever you want, you can work for that. So it's a free world. That freedom of choice is, is good. But the pitiful thing is, although everyone wants and strives for the freedom of choice, hardly anyone wants the choice of freedom. That's the funny thing about it. What's more important, do you think? The freedom of choice or the choice of freedom? <laughs> I'm here to give you the choice of freedom. It's again a choice. You don't have to choose freedom. It's a choice. But all these, time, all these years, all this while, you never chose freedom because you fought for the freedom of choice. You fought for the right to choose. I want to be able to choose. That's why I need my money and that's why I need my people. That's why I need my stuff. So I, so I can choose. I need to be able to go out. So don't lock us in. Lockdowns and this thing and that thing. I want to be able to go out and you know, get what I want, be what I want to be, go where I want to go. Give me that freedom of choice. All our lives we fought for that. But hey, now we realize what's more important <laughs> is the choice of freedom. Because without that choice, every other choice is a meaningless choice. Right? That's all your merits for today. <laughs> right. Let's do a transfer of merits. Remember, transferring merits is also a meritorious deed. So right from the moment you step into this monastery, folks, there's not an opportunity for you to earn, to engage in anything unmeritorious. Right? If you're, if you're conscious and if you're careful, then everything you do will simply earn you merits and lots and lots and lots of merits. You've already chosen to spend your day here, so make the most of it. Right? Otherwise, pack up and leave. If you've, chosen to, if you've chosen to spend your day here, then make the most of it. That's why I don't like it if I ever spot someone falling asleep in a sermon, because I know they've already committed a huge part of their lives to come and be here. Sometimes their children have had to make a sacrifice, their husbands have had to make a sacrifice, their wives have had to make a sacrifice, their homes, their friends, their relations have had to make a sacrifice. Sometimes their work has had to make a sacrifice. So, but you're here. So when you're here, Make sure that sacrifice is worth it. And then engage in as many meritorious deeds as possible. Look after each other. Make sure that the other person has what they want before you make sure you have what you want. Have they eaten? Do they have a glass of water? Do they have somewhere to sit? Are they comfortable? Do they know where the toilets are? Especially if you have someone near. I know this is teaching you to suck eggs here because you do it better than anyone does. I'm just saying, you know, this is how we operate here. We always look after each other. Because we do it, we know when we look after others, they look after us. Who's they? Doesn't have to be they, the universe. That's how it works. So, whatever merits we have earned today, let us take a moment to transfer it to all those who are deserving of it. Let us take a moment then to transfer all the merits that we have acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem chanting Pirit, listening to the Dhamma, and engaging in various meritorious deeds, first and foremost by reminding ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching. And with immense gratitude, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasikas and upasikas, who since time immemorial 
have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand, and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us transfer the mates we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us transfer these maids to Guru Swami Nuhansi as well as all the teachers resident at the monastery, as well as the Anagarika and the Anagarika communities attached to the monastery. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these talks, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them. And may, through the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the warful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May, through the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us take a moment to transfer the merits we have acquired to our devotees, friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well-wishes. May to the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us take a moment to transfer to our mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews, nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employers and employees, and to all those who have helped us, supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form. And by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us all take a moment to transmit to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Sambuddha Sasana. Let us transmit to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may, through the power of these merits, they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us take a moment to transfer merits to our ancestors who have predeceased us, and to all those who have been families, friends, and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in samsara, and to those who have helped, supported, and assisted us along the way. Let us transfer merits to the members of the armed forces, as well as the police force, who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation, and may all those who have lost their lives in the war be their friend or foe, rejoice in the merits we have acquired today. Let us transfer merits to all those who lost their lives in natural calamities, such as the tsunamis, earthquakes, landslides, pandemics, forest fires, and so on, reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been friends and family to us in this long journey in samsara. Let us take a moment to transfer merits to them, and may, by the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us resolve that may, through the power and blessings of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And finally, may, through the power of all the maids we have acquired, you and I, and everyone who has helped make this program a success, become an arahat nuhanse, an arahat nuhanse, in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all.